Decoding Future Leadership is an audiovisual podcast breaking open the capabilities, technologies, growth strategies, and mental fitness required to lead our future working world. A collaboration between PeopleStrong, the customer's choice for HR tech across Asia Pacific, and Fisher Leadership, each episode addresses the challenges of a hybrid workforce with a blend of human capability and HR technology solutions. Let's get into this week's episode. Hi there, I'm Dr. Marcel De Sanctis, and I'm the managing partner of Cognitive Solutions and CLA Brands within the Fisher Leadership Organization. It is my pleasure to welcome today's guest to the Decoding Future Leadership podcast, uh, Professor Bob Wood. Welcome, Bob. Bob is a distinguished professor at the University of Technology in Sydney, honorary professor at the Florey Institute, and founder and director of research at the Centre for Ethical Leadership in Ormond College, University of Melbourne. His research into bias, adaptivity, and the implications of technology when it comes to talent acquisition and capability development have been seminal and have really led the way in a lot of our thinking around these critical future of work and leadership topics. So it's my pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome, Bob. How are you? Thanks, Marcel. I'm very well and looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, good. Um, I think it certainly goes without saying that technology um, may well be one of the most powerful business tools that we have, uh, and in particular as people functions and HR functions that we have in creating diverse, equitable and inclusive organisations Um Um, If we think about the role of technology in really enabling um, diversity, it's certainly a top business priority today. I was really keen to explore some of these themes in our discussion. Um, And I wanted to just start with um, this idea that really, you know, a lack of inclusion has quite serious implications for improving and maintaining equality among all citizens. Um, But the issue is not just important for employees, Um, underemployment of minority applicants can hurt organisations and actually limit their ability to gain, um, I guess, full competitive advantage. What has your work revealed when it comes to human bias holding us back when it comes to making key talent decisions and thinking about company performance? Uh, Well, Marcel, just a comment on the technology. I think, uh, you know, the new business models that have been enabled by technology have been quite interesting. One is They've cut out a lot of intermediaries, so that, that removes sort of noise in the system in many decision-making processes. We can deal directly with a supplier or a you know, ticket provider or whatever. You know, we don't have to go through intermediaries. I think the other thing is you know, the, the benefit of that, it provides access to everybody, uh, or much broader access to a lot of uh, services and opportunities. Um, you know, for example, a young among millennials and others, you know, people are not using credit cards now. You know, they're going away from that intermediary and using more direct forms of payment and the like. Uh, they're exchanging uh, directly, you know, peer-to-peer and the like. So, so a lot of good has come out of technology. In, in the employment, so while the business models are somewhat clearer and, you know, how do you make money out of these things, and as always, there's some successes and some failures, um, uh, uh, but what what is not fully worked through is the implications for work. Now, in terms of how we do work, uh, that's becoming much clearer. You, know, we, you and I are talking uh, using a teleconferencing facility on a computer. You know, two years ago we probably wouldn't have been doing this. You know, so the, all these sorts of issues have been worked through, and uh, yeah, they're becoming clearer and clearer. The implications for human interaction 
human selection and all those, I think is still being worked through. And your point about inclusion, let, let me just deal with one part of the whole inclusive uh, chain, and that's selection. Yeah, there's been quite a bit of evidence has come out that uh, algorithms are being increasingly used in selection, and, and they're prone to bias, just like humans are. You know? and, so, and that's a problem of if you develop an algorithm through machine learning on historical data, and that historical data is biased, then the perform, prefer, preferred prototypes are going to be biased in the way. And, and, and so that can be quite subtle, and, uh, uh, you know, and, it, and it's a bit like human bias. You, you really can't observe human bias directly. You, you, well, sometimes when you're in a meeting and somebody says something, you can infer it from behavior. But you, we have to observe it from the outcomes. And of course, it's very difficult to infer it from a single outcome. We tend to need an accumulative impact. So, so I've recently been dealing with a, a legal case where uh, a young mother was, I feel, discriminated against. Um, but it's very hard to prove because people say, oh, no, no, there's, there's facts in the situation. So it's very difficult to establish. Whereas if you look over time and single mothers in this organization are not being hired or they're not being given prefer preferential treatment or whatever, that, that's the only way you can establish. So, so it's interesting. We have the same problems with uh, algorithms and technology in terms of bias. Now, in terms of access, um, I think there's, in the use of technology and inclusion, I, interestingly, I feel, and this is just a personal experience, I don't have any research, I, I feel that working with my team over the last two years, uh, using you know, different teleconferencing technologies like this one, uh, has increased inclusion. We've become much more aware of one another. We, we had a formal process where we uh, talked for a while about what movies have you seen, what books are you reading. So it was a much more inclusive process than others. So, uh, but as I said, I think we're still working it through. I don't think we know uh, all the answers about inclusion. The selection thing is is very important. Um, I, I don't. I think with a lot of decisions, like promotion decisions, any transition decision, I, I think. Um, that rather than just rely exclusively on technology, we should see it as an augmenting device, you know, a screening device and whatever. And look, the best solution to, psycho uh, to bias is to be aware of it, accept it, and talk about it and ask the question. Yeah, because bias is an unconscious process in most cases, and so if you raise it to consciousness and you approach it with a constructive open mind, you, you, you'll, you'll know whether you're being biased or not. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We talk a lot about, um, particularly in selection and recruitment processes, every piece of information that is gathered throughout that process really is a data point. And ultimately, we are um, wanting to build confidence in the decisions that we're making by reducing error, um, by de-risking the decisions, by having more information at hand and recognising um, where bias comes in at each of those stages and for each of those data points, what is the inherent bias with a psychometric assessment? What is the inherent bias with an interview data point? What is the inherent bias with um, you know, other forms of information that you're collecting? I think it's really important to recognise. Um, and as you said, exactly, acknowledge them, uh, understand what sort of prompts them, I guess, or, or, or have, has them sh come out and... Um, recognize through that awareness when we can 
um, isolate how it might be influencing decision making. Yeah, oh, look, I, I think there's several you know, really uh, good points in your comment about the approach. Yeah, first of all, the idea that any measure is just a data point, it's not a fact, right? Yes. And clearly we have to use them to discriminate, that's, that's their function and, and so it's always a very important question to ask, have they been validated for that function? You know, the problem is many technologies um, have not been validated. I, as Director of the Futures Academy, I've been approached by a lot of people who have you know, video technologies for analysing voice and all that, and, and that's fine, you know, they, they're useful as descriptors, but the moment you start saying, you know, you myself score makes you a better fit for a job than mine, there's a whole validation process that needs to lie behind that. Um, the fact that people can argue it doesn't actually prove it, yeah. So that, that, that's uh, you know, the first point I make. So I think that's really good that you uh, do just treat these as data points and allow for the fact that, okay, well, it's not absolute. I mean, you know, typically when they're extremes, then they're more informative than when they're just, you know, like the difference between a 7.5 and an 8.2 may mean nothing. But if a person's got a 10 and a person's got a 1, that's probably telling you, you know, something about the differences between them. So. I mean, yes. using in an, I think one of the problems people often use when they use uh, ha, have when they use data like that is they they don't appreciate that any difference uh, can be just error, and so you have to rely on yeah. So small differences can be overinterpreted, and I think that's yes. a very consideration. Um, so that's one point. I think uh, another point, of course, is in all bias. Uh, you know, all of us over time build up an implicit model. When you work in a in an area, you know, bias and expertise are just knowledge stored in long-term memory, right? And they they can be very similar. Expertise is knowledge that works. Bias is knowledge that doesn't work some of the time or doesn't use all the data. But they they operate in similar processes. And so the models you build up may be a very useful form of expertise. You know, be it a model of the ideal candidate or, or whatever it is. You know, a good worker. Uh, but they, you know, they may be inappropriate for certain types of people, and they may be inappropriate for um, under certain work conditions. So a lot of change is going on right now, and so a lot of in work, and so a lot of the traditional models, the products we had, the services that we designed were designed for baby boomers like myself, and then my children, you know, um, you know, like um, who are millennials have quite a different view of the world. So, and of course, our biggest bias is confirmatory bias. You know, yes. the, the, the search for certainty uh, can override the search for accuracy, uh, uh, particularly when there's complexity in the data. So uh, once again, it's always just you know, having the conversation, as you said, being alert to it, being alert to the possibility and not getting defensive when it's raised. I think that's, uh, and it's also got a lot to do with how the decision process is run. I think if it's open and it's full of good constructive challenge, then you know, you're doing all you can to minimize bias. But if it's very, you know, confirmatory and closed, um, it's not. Oh, can I, I'll just, just before we pass off this topic, I just want to give you an example uh, of, of how bias can become institutionalized and um, so this is this is one of uh, a global uh, accounting firm it's a very big firm very yeah, lots of employees and I was called by one of their senior partners in Japan saying look he's got this uh, young man who's a, an associate he's trying to get him on the the talent program he is fantastic he said he's great Japanese and all that and he said he keeps getting knocked back and uh, um, 
And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why? He said, well, when they do an assessment of him, he doesn't fit the profile. Now, it took, anyway, to cut a long story short, we went through and searched this through and ended up speaking to the global director of HR. But basically what it turned out was, you know, the, the ideal person for the talent team was your typical American, Anglo, Australian, you know, maybe English, and, 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 he, and, and he simply didn't fit that. You know, he was Japanese, and uh, so, you know, he, had, he came up quite different on independence scores and assertiveness scores, but he was the perfect fit for Japan, but so this, and and so I, the I think eventually I don't know the, the the sequel to the story whether he got on the talent program, but certainly the HR people were very attuned to the conversation. But it made me think. This is a, a company that's I don't know probably in practically every country in the world. I don't know, but it, but certainly a lot. And I'm just wondering how many people over the years have been discriminated against. And and it's sort of one of the things I points I made to the HR director is. Maybe this is one of the explanations why in Australia, every senior person in your uh, lead, yeah, your partnership until recent years has been uh, white male yeah. and, and other parts of the world. Yeah, so it's interesting. So when they're saying, and what the argument they were using is, well, we want them, but we just can't get the talented people. And the question wasn't, are the people talented? The question was your definition of talent. This podcast is created by Fisher Leadership and proudly sponsored by PeopleStrong. Here's a message from PeopleStrong CEO, Sandeep Chowdhury. We indeed are living in the era of talent economy. The talent economy fundamentally for us means looking at the world of work, workplace and workforce very differently than what we've essentially experienced and known in the pre-pandemic world. We fundamentally believe that experience, collaboration, and data will actually differentiate the best from the rest. With that ambition, People Strong has brought the first talent operating system to enterprises to essentially be able to personalize the employee journey right from the hiring into the learning performance and the career management stage of every employee. We've done that with massive amount of AI and ML that will bring in the right decisions for an employee and for the enterprises to essentially take the biggest advantage of the crisis that we're just coming out of. And it's really challenging in global multinational organizations which um, have a group people and culture function um, whose role it is with, you know, the broader leadership group to define what high potential looks like and to cascade that definition that is all-encompassing um, across the whole organisation to say this is our model of potential, this is what high potential talent looks like, this is our consistent global approach to talent management. How do you do that in a way that recognises those geographical location differences and cultural differences, striking that balance between a common language around leadership that organisations are constantly striving for and a common definition around what high potential talent looks like to then create programs and experiences to support people's development. But recognising cultural nuances is, I think, a balance that is almost impossible to strike and I think organisations grapple with it every day it's really difficult yeah I, I agree well i think like many of these things it's a dynamic process it's not a fixed process. yeah you, you don't have a i mean 
when, when you develop your global competency framework and you've got the solution rather than it's got to be a dynamic process and, and uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a set of tensions. You know, you need some degree of standardization. The language, you know, language carries culture. So standardizing language is, is a very important part of it. But, but language also can communicate a lot of bias. Yeah, the words we use determine whether we're thinking from a, or illustrate, not determine, but illustrate whether we're using a growth or a fixed mindset. They illustrate whether in confirmatory bias. So, so language is very, very important. Yeah, it's a, it's a non-trivial challenge. I think, uh, you know, totally diverse, decentralized model of the world that says, okay, well, uh, with individual differences. Now, keep in mind also, the point I want to make, Marcel, is these competency frameworks our beliefs and desires they are not validated predictors yes. of performance right and now they now if they're really bad i mean if they're just so at odds with what is the good employee they they would clearly get dismissed but yes but there's an element of preference in them there's an element of uh, bias in that sense and so yeah it's i, I mean I, I it's a question i have to take on notice but but it's worth thinking about how do you do this you know, do you abandon global systems and processes and go local and yeah you could do that with a set of guidelines about what is an appropriate system and process and maybe have some core components but then allow for a lot of local flexibility it's an interesting one um i, yeah, I couldn't agree more um and i think you're right you know um thinking about capability and those definitions of capability there's that element of they need to be aspirational but equally achievable um, and really it's that common language that um, harnesses that, that workforce. So, um, but for it to be effective, everyone needs to understand it and feel um, intrinsically motivated and connected to that language in, in some way. I want to explore a little bit around um, what's become the new norm, constant connectivity, remote working, um, obviously the enormous shift towards virtual working and collaboration as really the new norm um, and how you see technology platforms creating collaborative spaces for people to connect and adapt to change as a cohesive team what are you just what are your reflections um, with this shift that, that you've observed and in particular implications for team performance team functioning team chemistry and leadership yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question, and I have to say my thinking on this is still developing. Uh, let let me first of all reflect on my personal experiences, and and then I can reflect. I have a daughter who's entered the workforce a year or so ago, and and, and she sort of provide, and my sons provide a marked contrast in that. Yeah. So, um, so my personal experience with Zoom was, as I said earlier, you know, there, I have a team of about eleven people. And so, you know, and I see them regularly when, I, when we're working face-to-face -face and talk to them. But, but I've never quite known so much about them as I know now as a product of this um, um, meeting on Zoom, you know, regularly. And that's because we have you know, regular catch-ups. Yeah, you know, we often would, not often, but, you know, we get together socially and the like. And, um, and uh, but... Uh, but that was, it seemed different. So now, like I said, we have a weekly session. We just go around, how's your mental health? How, what are you doing? Um, and and uh, what movies are you watching? What books are you reading? Yeah, what do you do? And, you know, have you had COVID? <laughs> All these sorts of things. 
which is quite interesting. So a lot of the social curiosity, which I think is, you know, my own research is, you know, social curiosity is very important to empathy, and empathy is very important to interpersonal relations and leadership and the like. So, so the social curiosity is much more proactive than it was. I've always, like, had staff who, like, I discussed books with, or I had a staff member whose whole family used to dress up like Star Wars characters and go out to, to see movies. And, you know, and I used to talk to him about that. But, but, I, but there's a lot of depth, like, you know, I just know more about people. And, and I'm the oldest person in that, our team, and the youngest person's probably about 25, right? So it'd be, oh, no, no, actually younger, younger, yeah. So, so it's a big range. And so it's been a, quite an interesting, like, we recommend books and stuff. So, so in that sense, the social cohesion has really grown and uh, but it, it's not just because of the technology it's because of the way and I I cannot take credit you know one of my staff has been very proactive on the mental health issue and so it, it's blossomed and, and so I, I, what I've learned is when whenever I work in a team now uh, I'm going to uh, do that much more regularly like we do it fortnight and and people really look for it everybody turns out and it's you know so that's one thing uh, that's been really good, and so I, I refer to it as a sort of organised curiosity, uh, which you know doesn't. Then we come back to the interactions on Zoom are very sequential, and when you've got eleven people, uh, it's you, know, you, you queue. One person talks, and others can make comments, and that. My um, so it's very much a uh, form of sequential dependence yeah like it's almost like a production line where one one person does something then the next person does it and you can build on it but, but uh whereas i for me running research teams i've always worked in an open environment where there's just constant interactions like you know marcel i might say okay you do a growth curve modeling on that data and then and then you'd come into my office and talk and i'd walk around and then while i'm talking to you somebody says oh bob you know will and i are talking about this and, and so it's a highly dynamic, and when you're sitting in a meeting, uh, uh, like, you know, we were in a meeting yesterday, you know, if you, you know, just from your body posture, I can see, oh, Michelle wants to make a, a comment, you know, so, and it, and it seems appropriate now. So it's a much more, face-to-face -face is a much more dynamic process, and, uh, and so now, uh, but, but equally, you know, like, uh, there's just lots and lots of, stuff coming out in these chat rooms and the like. But as I said, the main problem I have is it's very sequential. Uh, it makes it too easy for people to withdraw, you know, whereas, uh, I mean, you, you can manage any of these things, but like if we're sitting in the room saying, well, okay, well, um, uh, you might say, uh, you yeah, what, know, what do you think? You know, somebody's sitting there not talking, you know, what do you think? So. Uh, I, I, you know, because I believe in inclusion and participation, I always use what I call round robin. Or turn, so every topic, beginning and end, I'll go around and say to each person, what do you think? Okay, and then, then build on that point. So that, I, I would encourage people to do those, that sort of thing because it's very easy for people to, to withdraw. They, they have something to say, but the opportunity doesn't seem right to them. And so that, the, so that, there's the two parts. I think the social, a curiosity and opportunity. Uh, I think it's got this limitation about the sequential nature of it. But I must say, all this technology around task management, which is sort of independent of the COVID thing, but you know, these um, uh, agile methods where we run 
task force and all, that has been fantastic for organising work and keeping us going. So that's been uh, excellent. So I think there's a, I think we're still learning. Now, when I go to my daughter, my daughter is quite comfortable uh, working at home on her computer. Uh, she's a, a status, well, a data analyst now, formerly a statistician, and works for a consulting firm that does lots of big projects and the like. And they have regular get-togethers. But she did say, uh, and that company is quite interesting, they have a, an event, a social event, where everybody gets together and, and they'll do something like bake a cake or they'll send the ingredients around, they'll bake a cake. So she loves that. She's been absorbed into that. But, she, but for all that, she said there's nothing quite like uh, getting together with them socially and meeting them. She, she worked for the company for six months before she met anybody face-to-face. And, and when she met them face to face, they went on a training program in Newcastle. She said it was just such a different experience. You know, we sat around talking, you know, in the evenings and, and discovered things about ourselves and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite a, a you know, different experience. And I think, uh, and I think that's the sort of depth of human contact that is very important. I think a lot of people have missed. And technology doesn't, re- it does in a one on one, but it doesn't in a group setting. You know. I agree. And what you've been discussing has made me think of um, a couple of things. Number one, almost the requirement for leaders to develop the skill of facilitation that perhaps wasn't as important in time gone by, but has become much more important now in facilitating online meetings, facilitating discussion, being able to bring people together together. confirm and 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 demonstrate inclusive leadership so that people feel that they've been heard that they haven't left anything on the table i think that's a skill that's become much more important now in this remote um world that we're living in um and i think also the requirement for leaders to really recognize that almost every communication moment has to be intentionally created in this shift to remote and virtual working environments, there's very little that is really opportunistic. And we've spoken about that in the past around um, the lack of incidental conversation, um, water cooler talk, that kind of thing. And it's really true. And I think for people who, for whom it comes very easily and naturally to initiate contact, um, they've probably adjusted better to this new mode of working. And for others for whom it's not as natural, it's a bit of the sort of out of sight, out of mind, um, it, you know, is a much more intentional behaviour that really needs to be created around initiating contact to create those moments of communication. Yeah. It, it's a really good point, Marcel, and just cause, causing me to reflect on it. You know, it, when you were talking about I mean, I was just thinking of mapping your comments onto my experience. And I think I think what is true is that um, the, the uh, technology you know, interface like we're having now is a much more scheduled thing. So, you know, like, uh, so we, we might have a meeting. Now, if I'm, if I'm in a meeting and I get a sense and I'm trying to engage somebody um, and I, I, their body language will tell me whether they don't want to or whatever. So, you know, there are limits to this. And so we all know that one, one you have, yeah, for inclusion, turn taking is very important, but also so people develop the skill of participating. Um, uh, the the other thing is, yeah, of course, this psychological safety idea that you know, people need to feel 
And I, I think that's that's an issue that needs to be created both online and others. But whether you, you know, whether it's more difficult for people to read body language when you've got all these small pictures, because psychological safety, part of it is anticipating other people's reactions, right? So Yes, now, exactly. You know, now, gen, you know, there should be a norm of, you know, I don't have to worry about this, but, you know, it varies a bit. And then there's sort of the other key point, this sense of efficacy, this safety. And I think I think when you can read people's body language and you're close, you know, some of these signals are easier to pick up. So that's one thing. I, I um, but, but over time they would develop. You know, like I feel we've got this going. Uh, and I do think your point about a leader being able to facilitate his or her team is absolutely critical to the psychological safety and the efficacy because nothing undermines efficacy than the sense of a meeting that goes like a meeting that goes nowhere you know where you know people dominate or whatever uh, uh, the the, um, the other point i would make in this I, I was thinking about your comments and so uh, you know there's the group meeting but then there's a sort of one-on-one -on -one component so if i'm talking to somebody about their confidence or their feelings of psychological safety i would prefer to do that one-on-one -on -one. and so if we're in a meeting and i see somebody's not you know, it's fully engaged or whatever, I, I'm more likely to be able to talk to them later. Now, on a Zoom meeting, I, I I mean, I can either do it in the presence of other people, which is not as comfortable, um, or I can uh, schedule a follow-up meeting, you know, which is, you know, is a whole lot more effort and less likely to happen because why? Just because there's friction in the process. Scheduling is a highly frictional process. You know, it takes time, often two or three emails and the like, you know. Before we go off there, I just want to comment your, you know, your point about bringing people in and facilitating this. You know, I was mentioning how the team has this movies and the like. So we had we had a person, uh, or we have a person. Okay, uh, she's planning to she's moving on because she's had a child. So, but uh, she was the most introverted person. Really difficult to get, you know, to talk. So, you know, blow me down. We discovered in this process this really quite timid woman. Her favourite movies are the Fast and Furious series, and she can talk about them in great detail. The different car chases. <laughs> it was That's just like fantastic. Oh, no. <laughs> so you know, there's a lot going on below the water, as you say, uh, as people say. Yeah, it was Absolutely. quite an amazing discovery. It was just like such a fantastic contrast to who we thought she was and who she actually is. Yeah, and I think she enjoyed. Uh, the, us discovering that about her in a very safe way. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And actually, we've really come full circle, haven't we? Back to that con concept of bias, that yeah. the, the biases that led to the, that initial conclusion and then the surprise um, yeah, totally. when she shared her interests. Yeah. <laughs> that, exactly, yeah. It was, a, it was. Somebody said it's a bit like that scene on uh, that uh, idol show when that woman, Raylene Boyle, sang, yeah, she, that rather dumpy woman worked that, walked out and they, all the people on the show were looking at her thinking, and then she suddenly burst into the Rolling Stones song Wild Horses, and they were just floored. I mean, if you haven't seen it, it ran in Boyle on, it's like American Idol or one of okay. these. Okay. Yeah. But it, it, it's, everybody had this uh, uh, view of her. You know, she was a middle-aged lady wearing a frock, the sort my mother would have worn, and then stood there like a statue and then just opened her mouth and it was like the voice of an angel you know it's just incredible yeah so and and you they pan across the uh the uh audience and you see the change if anybody's ever looking 
for an example of how bias can be so wrong, it is a great little clip on, uh, I think it's on YouTube. Okay, yeah, great. Well, Bob, thank you so much. It's been fabulous conversing with you and um, we uh, look forward to staying connected. Thank you again. Thank you, Marcel. That's it for today's episode of Decoding Future Leadership. Thanks for listening. We'd really love to hear how your workplace is combining human capability and HR technology to redesign our hybrid working environments. Please like, comment, share and subscribe to help us create a world of difference. Brought to you by PeopleStrong and Fisher Leadership.